Kanal Gupta, thank you so much for joining me. And I want to just start off today by saying you and I don't actually know each other that well. Um, I think we've hung maybe at Silent Barn sort of a like, hey, we're here. And like we had, a, there was like 35 Soci students running around and like it was yeah, total. Yeah, that was total, great. That's what I remember you by. Yeah, so. total chaos. Um, but I, I, I'm I'm not exactly sure why I re- I messaged you last night, but like you're always someone who like when I come your Facebook feed sort of passes through my ether. I'm like, Got oh, it. Kunal, yeah, 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 of course. And then you always anyway. I just was really curious to chat with you, um, and I'm okay, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like maybe before we dig into drill down on anything specific, but. Yeah. What has your life been like since Silent Barn? I feel like I, I, you and I have not touched base really in any weird, real way since Matmos and Sosi took over Silent Barn. And so maybe just real quickly, tell me, like, what what took you from Silent Barn to, to San Francisco? I know that's a very broad question, but we'll start there and I'll ping us wherever I, we go. That's actually not that complicated. Um, Silent Barn is like a quintessential example of a place that had trouble paying the bills, Mm -hmm. but had like hundreds, if not, you know, I guess let's say hundreds of people a night. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but like a lot of traffic and a lot of love. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, so there's like this, like, okay, if we can't do it, how can anyone pay the bills? Like uh, how something seemed a little broken. Mm -hmm. And um, I had another place called baby castles gallery, Mm -hmm. which I created after silent barn had similar pro like you know had the same uh situation where it was it was it was known around the world for putting on video games as art and being like the most interesting space to see video games as art um but of course like it's not that easy to pay the bills even though you're doing something really cool in new york so that was background um i'd been coordinating and running these spaces so the, the the financial problems were background in a way like it weren't like I was usually the one behind like figuring out like fundraising or mm-hmm. budgeting for uh, both of those projects at least for a significant time. Yeah, well, um, and sorry, sorry to interrupt, Kunal, but like I, I'm just sort of agreeing with you. Like my knowledge of you, whenever I walked into Silent Barn, was like, oh, cool. The reason we're here is Kunal opened the doors and unlocked everything and made. Like he's the person that organized the refreshments and he's the person like I sort of just had this general sense that you were sort of the one of the movers and shakers in that scene. And I entered that scene fairly young, to be quite honest, and really ignorant of a lot of the sort of smaller scenes in New York um, just because of what I happened to bounce through when I was in New York. So and so my experience with you is like, yeah, Canal's the Canal is the person who is sort of like making sure everything runs on time though i know that's there's many other people in the mix but that was my there are many other people yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm generalizing of course but that's my that was my perception specifically i was probably not very good at making things run on time that, was, <laughs> that wasn't one of my uh, strengths but what i was was kind of like a i don't know maybe masochist or something but like the thing that you needed was the budgeting and the and the fundraising to work if you didn't do that like none mm. nothing else would work right so mm. so not I didn't necessarily do get to do very much else because at at some point, like that's all you have the time to do. Uh, mm-hmm. So I wasn't really, there's lots of people making actually silent barn work. Whereas I was just like uh, me and Joe primarily actually were, were just uh, doing the spreadsheet part and mm-hmm. like trying to get like uh, 
successfully get like 10 really cool art people to put in, uh, give us loans to to keep the whole thing going. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, I did, I, you know, it's just like the thing no one else will do. So, so then you have to do it sort of thing, but also like you do it a few times, you get proficiency for it. So it's the thing you don't want to do whatsoever, but also like, it's magic because then the space is running and all this beautiful mm-hmm. stuff happens, mm-hmm. even though you don't get to curate very much or really touch anything else. So uh, I ended up like having a good sense of what is possible for uh, like how to make money for when you have like two, two, three hundred. Well, you know, I'm exaggerating, but let's just pretend it's two to 300 people a night is probably that on a big night and like mm-hmm. 50 people on a small night. Mm-hmm. Um, but how to make money with that traffic and with some rent and some people living, like I knew the max and the max isn't going to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. So we, um, I also had a, in, uh, a volunteer for baby castles. We became a collaborator at Silent Barn, um, named, uh, Hillary Reeves at the time. And she was studying like fundraising for art spaces. And she was like, just read this book. And then she's like, okay, now read this part. And we're going to do uh, memberships for Baby Castles, my, my video game gallery. Mm-hmm. We're, but we're going to do it slightly different. We're going to make them really cheap. And then we're going to staff every event uh, with some volunteer that just keeps telling people to buy a membership. We're going to stuff an iPad in a, in a, in a, like a, a teddy bear, I think. We just like made this really cute thing that you have to use to, to buy a $5 a month subscription to mm-hmm. Baby Castle's gallery mm-hmm. to support it. Mm-hmm. And so it'll be attractive and and I think people are going to buy it. And so she did, she was right. Like we did all that. I coded a little site for uh, quickly buying stuff like on a subscription basis at, at the venue, which was really a long time ago. So like, mm-hmm. I don't think, mm-hmm. I think Patreon existed, but we didn't know it existed. Mm-hmm. So it was like too early for, like they were just, messing around with the same ideas. Yeah. I mean, Patreon feels like, I mean, I think now a lot of kids in school look at Patreon as this, it's like, I think when I was younger, it was like GoFundMe and Kickstarter were like the main ways you could independently fund something. And Patreon only really feels like within the last couple of years has hit sort of a mainstream where like some random person has a podcast and put their stuff up there to monetize it, you know? And it's such a big difference. Do you do that? Do you use it? No, I, I don't just because I'm terrible with, monetization of this sort of thing for me has been like, I just, it's, it's, it's enough stress to monetize. So percussion to try to make enough money. And like the idea to do the same with my podcast was like, no, I mean, that's actually, that's actually why we created uh, our particular approach at at this, at our company that's called with friends, which Mm -hmm. is why we're in San Francisco is that there's a whole bunch of people that like, don't want to just hustle like subscriptions, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. not, they're, they're going to do the art or they're going to make the space, but they really don't want to do the fundraising part because it's not, it's just not the soul of the project to like mm-hmm. tell people to pay for it uh, actively. Mm-hmm. So we, um, so just like, so we found a way to just have that happen automatically. So you, mm-hmm. it's not really made for podcasters. It's made for like venues and small businesses, but basically when you buy anything at these places, it just, the the screen upsells you. And it's like, don't you want to become a member? You'll get like a deal on what you just got. You'll support this place. Uh, you'll be a cool person. And like, mm-hmm. you just get a good conversion, but the, mm-hmm. The business owner, the staff, nobody has to say anything or do anything. We just have to pop up the opportunity to become a member. Mm-hmm. And you'll see a lot of people just take it because they love the the local businesses in their city or right, right. whatever business they're buying from. So that allowed people to feel free to not think about it while still getting the like uh, 
the benefits of community support for what well, they do, which which is kind of just there. And relative to the model at Silent Barn, how were those two compared? Like it, now in hindsight, so, yeah. how do you compare those two? Now, now I'm going to go back to so Baby Castles. I ran this by hand, and it worked. And we actually got like eighty thousand dollars in the first year, uh, which was like awesome. But we Whoa. got twenty thousand through subscriptions, and then we like started meeting the bigger ones. Mm-hmm. And one of them just gave us a lot more money, and mm-hmm. that just like we're like, oh, this this project financially works, magic. Uh, so Hillary was right, mm-hmm. but then. Uh, and so we kept we kept that going, but like I did not think of like a business out of that, like uh, out of that tool. It was just for my gallery, and uh, we didn't really apply it to Silent Barn uh, at the time. Where mm-hmm. it's just there's like okay, I know accounting is tough. Okay, I know that like affordable memberships hocked at the door uh, as people come in works, but then that's just all background knowledge. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, at Silent Barn, we're trying to solve so many problems, like team building, like for different like. Uh, staffing shows, like building working groups that don't fight uh, all the time. And uh, like, you know, uh, just doing collaborative accounting and mm-hmm. cert- and all sorts of stuff. So I was sitting there at some point, I'm like, I have a lot of tech skills. I'm going to try just solving random problems here and seeing mm-hmm. if I can make Silent Barn run faster. So I built a collaborative accounting tool, which then QuickBooks eventually made. And so that was way better than what I built. So, but we were using something called the freezer at Silent Barn for a while, which the yeah. whole point was it was like an accounting tool, but like lots of people can throw in numbers into instead of just one. Yeah. Uh, it was really novel at the time. Uh, I did not create any of this to create a business. I was just trying to create it for Silent Barn. So it was like really yeah. funny looking and stuff. Uh, and so that one, you know, we QuickBooks was our saving grace. Uh, I tried to create this thing that was about building uh, uh, like, staffing shows or just building any sort of team for something that's urgent really quickly. Like just taking the, like if you try to run anything, you just text people all the time. Mm -hmm. And then you have to text people that actually like don't hate each other or else they get mad at you. Uh, And so I was like, Oh, maybe this is solve a problem. I started working on that and I was getting pretty far. Um, But at at some point I started working with, um, with Joe on just like, we're like, we're going to solve these. We're actually going to make a company around this thing and we're going to like test stuff Mm -hmm. and like bring it to our friends so we, we had this like team building tool going out for like 12 people, uh, businesses around and, and they sort of liked it. It was really, it, it was, it was cool. You could like, you could build a little team and you could like text them. It was just, it was good for coordinating like volunteer groups and stuff like that. But uh, while we're working on that, I'm not really sure what inspired Joe to, to, to do this, but I, he was like, what if you insert an upsell, uh, Oh, so we had built all sorts of stuff, including a ticketing platform um, as well. Like we were just fucking around, right? What, and just, what you're describing in terms of the the workflow thing to me sounds a little bit like what Slack sort of. Slack came out around the same time too. Okay, so that's right. at some point we were like, oh, we're just like a worse Slack. So just well, keep I, that in yeah, mind. sorry. I don't want to, I don't want to imply that like all of your stuff is like derivative of QuickBooks and Slack or anything like that. It's no, just it like, was the other way around. Yeah, yeah no, no. It was well, all happening at the same time. But I want to sort of like yeah. for, for people who um, – just and also just can you just tell me the time period of when Silent Barn was – I mean because that's going to so, feel like eternity for some people. Oh, yeah. So this, like, this new Silent Barn started in like I think 2012, right? Okay. And so we started messing around. Like the, the membership thing I'm talking about is 2014. Mm-hmm. And then – 2016 or so we're just like let's try building tools okay. and like uh sometimes it was for to try to create a business most times it wasn't and this team building thing we're like you know 
we were actually trying to, we're like, Hey, I think there's a business here. There's lots of businesses that want to like need to staff things quickly and then communicate between them. And uh, it did turn, that's about when Slack came out too. And it's, so it was, it was like, we're like, okay, cool. We'd also built a ticketing platform um, for, so you know, the whole idea was like when people buy tickets, they can like sign up for groups to actually work at Silent Barn. So we were just like upselling them into mm. volunteers, which is weird, but it worked. Uh, and then Joe's like, what if you just upsell them to like donate? Like, won't that just be simpler? And, and we did that. And uh, I built that, just added in and strapped it in. It had nothing to do with what we were doing. But then like the conversion from ticket bar to donor was like 30%. So it's a lot more money coming in as, for, for the mm. show space as we built that. And we're like, oh, wow, that's really crazy. We ran it with a few, bu- a bunch of venues and we, we got pretty much the same results. Like 30% was, was mostly Silent Barn, but the conversion even to date is something like 5% across like every business. Mm-hmm. And we've changed the donation to a subscription. So I that, mean, yeah, that's it. That's of, the whole thing. That's you're sort of touching on a lot of things that now as a 42-year-old person, um, I'm, I'm, in, I'm looking back at like my early t- time right out of grad school. Like I joined So, I meet people like Dan Truman and we start working at, So starts working at Princeton where Dan had just graduated a, a grad student of his named Guh who now who like went and wrote the T-Pain app for Apple and, and like did a, he wrote, I think there's some other, there's another guy, Perry cook, some folks who wrote like Chuck and yeah, like yeah. super collider and all these different things that like at the time when I, when I'm getting out of grad school, I'm like, I'm in my tux coat. Like I'm ready to play contemporary music and I'm hanging out in this room with this guy. And I'm like, Oh cool. He's a student of Dan's. And then I looked like, Six months later, it turns out <laughs> he's selling like four million one dollar apps because of of a coding thing. And yeah. I was sort of aware that there was this there was another tool set in addition to my ability to play paradiddles or play marimba or play steel yeah. drums or work with Matmus. There was another yeah. skill set that I was sort of like had horse blinders on, and I was like, I'm going to pretend that's not there because it's such a it's like putting the ring of Mordor or whatever on and just being like you have this power that nobody else has. And I was always yeah. envious of Dan Truman because yeah. he could open up a laptop and make it sing and do whatever the fuck he wanted it to do. And yeah. I'm gleaning from you now in hindsight that you are very similar where in Tristan Parrish was somebody who was another Tristan person was, early yeah. in my life where I was like, who the fuck is this wizard? And where yeah. did he get these Hogwarts <laughs> style powers from that he could just, I can check my email barely, you know, but can you just like, yeah, that is the to... inspir- That is the reason you, we started being like, oh, why don't we actually try to solve these problems? Because we can, you know? Well, this is, I mean, can you just speak to a little bit of like what it feels like, or just, I don't know, like if this is even a good question. Were you aware at the time, or are you even aware now of how much control and power you had over things because of that specific skill set? Like, let's take Kunal, like take all of your ability to code out of yeah. your of your body. I think yeah. you'd still be a really interesting musician and you'd still be doing a lot of the things you're doing and it would still the passion would still be there. But like I suspect there'd be a massive like your art would look much different. And I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about that? Like am I yeah, am I identifying anything no, that's on the It's even simpler. Days? Like there's a whole like even with Tristan, for example, I first created my first venues with Tristan in mm-hmm. Providence. Uh what we did was create a freelance uh I think it was a design and development firm probably for web stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. But it wasn't all web stuff. Like we built like really interesting projects on a freelance basis and it paid us like 
we paid, we worked like 10 hours a week and then we spent all the money on basically building scrappy venues. And, and that I, is what I've done all my life. Mm. And that's an insane amount of power. Like the fact that I could work on a little bit of my life to uh, keep things afloat in my life and then spend the entire rest of my time, like just not worrying about money so that I can build like the right art space. Mm. Uh, that I think is what I, how I saw it now at some point I'm like, wait, what happens if I spend all of my time on the thing that like seems to be like the most valuable skill I have. Mm-hmm. But it, it took that clicked a little later. Like it was cause like the computer, the tech industry, it didn't seem attractive as a, you know, as a, as a musician or something or initially, it was just a way to make money. I, well, I didn't really understand the power until, until like it clicked later. Well, there's some things that, I mean, it's interesting for me. I was, I was diagnosing it as like this extreme to this tool that if you, if you held it and could wield it, you held extreme yeah. power, but yeah. sometimes power doesn't come with a default sort of creativity built into it. Sometimes power yeah, is true. sometimes power is just just a one or a zero, and it's either on or off. Yeah. And I feel like the thing I'm learning is like with math and with coding and with all these things that you and Tristan and Dan and all these people who I don't know have a lot of there's a lot of creativity there. And this is yeah. something that took me a second to realize and to realize, but also then to just acknowledge out loud that you being creative with ones and zeros inside of DOS or whatever your terminal window is is no different than me being creative with Caroline Shaw in a studio. Yeah. Really? I mean, when it comes down to I think it's it, inherently creative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. It, what comes out is different. And, and there's, a, um, I don't really know how to weigh the power of like art, you know, on culture versus tech on culture. There's like, those are both actually pretty influential domains, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, I'd say what I learned recently which has probably changed everything for me is that there is a, maybe it's the same for artists, but there's an infinitesimal uh, amount of create, like there's a, you can try to create culture uh, through these kinds of skills, these creative skills that we have. And a lot of the time you will grow like this much and you'll make like, a pretty good impact on like a pretty finite space, like mm-hmm. your like uh, part of Brooklyn or something for us. And then there's this like weird thing that happens with some, uh, some artists, including uh, uh, tech businesses where instead of doing that, it just like blows up. Right. And that's when your band goes and your friend becomes a major label, like musician or whatever. And then they're like influencing, you know, the country at large and the world at large. And it's the same, I guess it's the same, it might even be the same percentage, but I think I understand how to do that with technology where I don't think that is a thing I know how to do as loud objects to like Mm. soldering microchips band. Like, I think that I could see the ceiling there. (laughs) Well, I mean, also, I mean, there, uh, this is the thing as an artist that I'm, I mean, I, I have these internal arguments about like whether or not government funded art is the end all to be all, or as an artist, do I need to be convincing the market to give me money versus private donorship? Like all of that stuff for me is tricky, but then there's also the, the, the truth, which is sometimes soldering live on a overhead projector just is not going to yield the same amount of money as owning a hedge fund. And that's just true right now. That may be true. It's not what I want to be the truth, 
It's just you might have to work a little harder to make enough money to have that be your sole job because the market doesn't necessarily look at that as something that is. And I would say the same for soap percussion. I mean, it's not like when we walk out and play, we have I have to work a lot harder to have the same appeal that Taylor Swift has. And, you know, and this is interesting. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm right. I'm just sort of like this is where I am today in my sort of like if I was triaging how I'm where I'm bleeding as an artist, like, well, this is my fault. This is my fault. This might be the system. This is my fault. This might be just audiences don't like what I do. Okay. So now I I live entirely in the business space. I haven't Mm -hmm. thought about art, even though I do remember actually in the loud objects days, me and Tristan were like, we got to make techno albums. It's going to be big. Loud objects, techno albums. (laughs) We just never got around to it. Right. But like, we really thought that was a, like a path, like, and this was before most things sounded as crunchy as loud objects did. So we thought like the sound itself would be interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately what we're asking ourselves is like, how many people like this? Right. Mm-hmm. And no matter what, there's still probably work you can do to get the people that would like what you do to like, know about it and start mm-hmm. like listening to it. Um, and so there's always that, but there's also like, Hey, this is the kind of art I'm going to make that's going to, you know, like 1% of Brooklyn is going to like it. And there is no more than that. So <laughs> right. then, if you're only getting 1% of Brooklyn, trust me that you're not going to get any of Dover, Ohio. <laughs> if well, you're only convincing I'm 1% just, of Brooklyn, you know, like. I'm just saying you can make like a mental calculation and be yeah. like, here's what I bet my like market is. Um, and yeah. you can do that for anything. Mm-hmm. And so then you start asking yourself, do I want to change what I'm making? Because yeah. something that's really close to what I'm making you know, 10% of the United States will like, which is everybody really, as far as at that point. Mm -hmm. But like, obviously like very little music uh, or anything has, I I think I use a bad thing. 1% of the United States might like that might be the, that might be the highest number there is. But um, like if you might then want to do that or you might not want to do that. Um, So you could just kind of iterate those choices. Um, So it's maybe not that different from a business, although I'm not sure I've thought, I think I thought about loud objects that way too. I was like, I was able to do that. The reason I say that I, I, and again, like I, you are, I don't want to sort of like say some sort of like, I saw this thing. And then you're like, Oh my God. Like Uh, I saw uh like a big long, it was an open, I think it was a a shareholders convention with Steve jobs where he was having to answer Uh, questions to a bunch of people and people were giving him shit about, the user platform or or about the user platform, not being as technologically sort of like you couldn't get in and be like deep dive Linux, you know, all of this stuff. Like, like I get in there and like, like an audio file with wood with a record, like, and he was like, I'm trying, do you want these computers to be sold to 2,500 people? Or do you want these computers to be sold to 25 million? I want to have 25 million people using yeah. this no, device. That's super, you have to think about that. And I feel like he's one of the people that, like, for, for good or bad, I don't necessarily have a value judgment to put on Steve Jobs as a person or what he's done or not done. But, like, that approach, I do feel like it's not an unhealthy thing to think about. Like, so what is the equivalent for soap percussion? What is our user interface? The user interface is the four of us. Yeah. And so when we're on stage, probably going to a concert many times or something. Yeah. And so like, if we're on stage, we're the equivalent of the, the, the Mac OS thing where some tiny child's going to touch something and be able to next thing, you know, order something on Amazon. 
And so we have to think a little bit about how we present ourselves, how we talk to an audience. And I just appreciated that Steve Jobs was willing to, in that moment, be like, I'm thinking about this. And I'm just kind of curious for you, like when you're working on, you, I saw something that you mentioned you're living in a hacker house. Yeah. And and I, I kind of like, I don't mean to sort of divert our conversation, but I'm, I think it does sort of dovetail a little bit. Like huh. hacking, my perception of a, hack, of a hacker house is people getting in there and just being like, let's find every weakness. Let's find everything. Let's do, let's, <laughs> no, let's. a different word, hacker. <laughs> sorry. I know. Oh, wait, I know. Hold. I'm in. Pardon my ignorance of all of the, the jargon here. So you can, I hope Inter- I don't get. Sorry, I interrupted. No, no, no. I hope I don't get like hackers showing up at my front door being like, you know, but um, I'm just curious, like, is that mentality of like, where do you draw the line personally as a like, I'm here to mine and just figure out what, what is the best thing. And then how do we take the thing that I think is the best and make it something that millions of people want to use and can use while still having the integrity that you started out with? This is actually really hard. So um, first, I was saying that thing about 1% of Brooklyn or whatever, but it turns out like probably if you're getting 1% of Brooklyn like stuff, probably 1% of, uh, I don't know, you said Toledo? Dover. Dover. Uh, oh, Dover. Like like maybe half percent actually do like what mm-hmm. you're doing there. And so you actually start to be like, oh, actually, you know, like a half a percent of the whole country should like soap percussion. And then you realize that the way to do that is to not actually increment, like you don't change what you're doing mm-hmm. to match them necessarily. You just have to like, be like, Oh, I think Dover really needs to know about this. And then you have to like, make sure Dover knows about this. And then you've suddenly gone from 1% of Brooklyn to 1% of Brooklyn plus a half percent of mm-hmm. Dover. And you have to just do that over and over again. And then yeah, you yeah. actually, uh, you know, start to have everybody that should, uh, you think would benefit from so percussion to actually like have it as part of their lives. So, most things you probably don't need to change what you're doing for, I suppose. Like you can probably get pretty far without doing that. Um, but I do appreciate that analogy that you gave about, uh, well, what's the vision anyway, right? Because if the vision is like really large and you know that something that fits a really small group of people is actually in the way of the really large thing you want to do, you can't let the small thing get in the way of the large thing. So you, mm-hmm. you kind of have to change and make the thing that's like correct um, uh, for like, well, here's the thing that like, I mean, here's the like react. You just asked about a hacker house, which is interesting, but here's like the related story in terms of like music stuff that we had to go through, which is that both of us really wanted to make subscriptions for small businesses. Mm. But, and that's like bookstores, like pizza shops, all sorts of like local things that are around uh, your city. You, they're all going to get priced out the same way Saint Barn was. And we're like, this doesn't have to be the case. Like bodegas, anywhere that mm. people love. And so, but we'd created something for event organizers and music venues. And at some point we we're like, oh, actually this is what we've created is really working for bookstores now. And um, we're a really small team and we're spreading ourselves thin serving bookstores and event organizers. Um, And we had to wrestle with the fact that like, well, what we want is like the 8 million small businesses, uh, well, local business at the time 
in the country to all be using this thing, we can't like focus too hard on um, something that isn't working, which is the event organizer space. And the reason it wasn't working was that like event organizers are a little less business minded than like other mm. kinds of businesses. Mm. So it's a little bit harder to like, you build something for a group that doesn't necessarily want to make money. Like, cause it's all kinds of like art, uh, art organizers that are like, just not that interested in like, like they're almost anti, like there's well, a lot of anti-business like event organizers, That's but there aren't of, as many. What? Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Go ahead. But there just aren't like that. Like when you jump out of that group, like most small businesses are actually pretty like, they're like, okay, can I, can I actually make more money? Sure. Show me how to make this easy and then I'll do it. And so we just decided that we had to like go all in on, on the thing that really fit, but then COVID happened and then we had to drop that too. And we started serving just online businesses. Mm. And this is getting really weird because now I'm, we've been wanting to create something for cities, right? Like, but what we found is the most efficient fit right now is uh, online businesses, which, which are really cool. Like they're, they, they all have warehouses in cities and, and towns mm-hmm. around the world. They're making stuff. Uh, they're, they're not like lesser than local businesses, but it's just different from what we thought. And those people just jump on, jump on what we're making. And so now we've just decided that, okay, like, like, Let's do it. You know, we're going to serve these um, prim- like bookstores that are online mm-hmm. or uh, food shops that have an online component. Like we're just going to we're just going to add the upsell to the online shopping experience and we're going to mm-hmm. make all that stuff work. Mm-hmm. And we're actually stopped focusing as much on anything else. Um, and the reason we're doing all that is I think that is going to give us the best chance of like the overall vision we want. But it does come at the cost of like. <laughs> what we what we thought we wanted to you know what we created a couple of years ago that was like our art no i mean this is uh, sorry I, I i apologize if the term hacker house is like uh, again like i don't understand the jar i don't know if that's offensive to, to that. say like but i feel like i read it off of one of your posts like you said that you yeah. were just moving into a hacker house so yeah. i feel like you know. i'll go back to that so uh ha- hacker i i i was saying this morning uh but i was like but Apparently it might be controversial, but I don't think it's controversial. I think punk houses and hacker houses are the same thing. Wait, so punk houses? Punk houses is like the name for like silent barn style spaces. Oh, got it. Okay, all right. I live in a hacker house. The only difference is that they're good at coding. Okay, that's all it. Right. They're like the right. same people. It's like, like the stone is a hacker house for music. Yeah, it's just people that are like really proactive uh, and like have some some level of skill set to like change the city or change the internet in this case. But like they just go for it. They, they go for it without like abandon. Can I ask you? Um, I mean, can, with abandon. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about? I mean, just because you are in tech right now, and, and you like I said, you you've been in tech your whole life, but now you're sort of more officially there as like a day to day thing. Can you talk to me a little bit about like? just the ethics around when the, how many people are in your house when you're, when you're, when you're like doing work, like how many people are collaborating at any one time or are you all independent? I don't, I'm making some assumptions here about what a hacker yeah, house is. Yeah. I just assume you all okay, get around so, a table, uh, you have headphones on and you're all smoking cigarettes and like <laughs> somebody's on Molly and there's like, you know, <laughs> I'd say a, a hacker house is probably in the startup world. It's like a bunch of people that are so small that they don't have to go to the, to the office to like manage their teams. So for me, it's just me and Joe. Okay. 
right. Two, and then some of my roommates are like in duo teams, and some of them are solo teams. So, so you're telling like, me I shouldn't <laughs> base my vision of a dr- hacker house off of Silicon Valley, the TV show? Is that what you're telling me, <laughs> or is that actually fairly accurate? <laughs> Silicon Valley was like almost the same thing, okay, but it was right. like five instead of like two. So well, it's not that different. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you can you tell can you just I have a question about ethics around this stuff because um Yeah, ethics. And I'm asking out of ignorance here because yeah. um I was one of the first I was on Facebook when it was only at the Ivy League schools. And yep, at the too. time it was like, you know, I, yeah. I mean, I was a kid from all, from all cornfield, Ohio, and I'm just happened to land at Yale and I'm like Facebook, Ooh, an elite club yeah, I can yeah. be in, you know, I'm like, I've never been in an elite club, you know? And so yeah. I joined Facebook and moved on with yeah. my life. And now here we are what some 20 odd years, years later. It's crazy. I think I, I would say that it's, I, I don't want to abdicate Zuckerberg or Bezos or anybody of their responsibility now. But I, I am curious if it was even possible for them to even understand the ethics of what they were doing then to see what, how to project out. And again, I'm asking out ignorance here to project out 20 years later into what it would have I mean 10 years later, Facebook was only a place where you posted pictures of your coffee. Now it is a place where misinformation about election interference predominantly takes place. That was not the case 10 years ago. And so like, I'm curious as you all are creating things, I don't need, I, I'm not asking you to do like a, 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 a an autopsy on Bezos or, or, or Zuckerberg here. But yeah. do you all feel the sort of impending pressure of like, what if you discover an algorithm that solves these problems, but like is sort of like, it's like Oppenheimer with the Manhattan Project, you know, like there's a picture of him in his that home. That was a with, weapon. <laughs> that was clearly a weapon. <laughs> are you telling me the Facebook algorithms are not being used as weapons? Canal Gupta? Yeah, no, no, I mean, that, that falls I mean, apart. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, see. I feel like there's a picture of Oppenheimer in his home with his hand on the bomb and he has this look on his face of like oh my god i don't know exactly what we've done here and i i think now in hindsight we can look at bezos and zuckerberg and be like you clearly have known you were going to ruin the world do you all have those conversations when you're like making things up and building platforms of like what happens if we scale this up it's even worse uh i think most of these kids are like like my my roommates are all like 20 or 19 Mm -hmm. so and I think Zuckerberg probably was about the same age, I imagine, when I think he started true. fucking around. So, that's right. like, they're just like, I want to solve this problem, mm-hmm. and I'm going to solve this problem, and then I'll take it from there. And so, I imagine they're going to stumble into similar things. Like, that's just a rep- that'll just keep happening. Like, if there's, I think it's because they're young. I bet that's what it is. Like, after, like, I think teaching can help. Like, sometimes they have leaders in the industry, like, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, that they look up to. Um, and so, a common one is the. Do you know the company Stripe? Yeah, yeah, of course. So, like, you'll see, I'll see my roommates like reciting what Patrick Collison, the guy that made Stripe, says about different cultural things. And now he's is super well read, cultural, like philosophical, like mm-hmm. he's providing some sort of moral leadership to the industry. I think, I think those kinds of people will probably be the solution to this problem, which is like, as opposed to, I, I can't, I, I don't know, like. <laughs> I don't really watch Mark Zuckerberg that much because I don't know. I just hadn't gotten around to it. I think it's because there's this thing called Y Combinator that we were part of in, in uh, Silicon Valley, which is like D D heart. It's like the like cult that basically created the whole place more or less. Wait, say that um, Y Combinator. Yeah. Why? So it's like, talk to me like I'm like, two. I have no idea what you're talking about. So Y Combinator is 
a it was created probably 2008 or so i don't know maybe a little soon earlier than that and it was just like this cult following around a thinker on the internet named paul graham okay and people just like loved his essays because he was so smart and he was smart talking about like what's going to happen in the startup world he started just like being like okay i'm gonna fund 10 companies and and you get he created one who was successful mm-hmm. enough to to be able to fund 10 companies and so he created this like thing that you come to you live here you live with other people that he funds and he just every tuesday like you got you guys get dinner together mm-hmm. and I'll bring you some cool mentor that'll just like talk about their life. Mm-hmm. That's it. So he did that over and over again, but there are a lot of principles um, inside of Y Combinator that are like kind of holding this, like is like a cult. It was like, they actually mm-hmm. believe in a certain set of principles. They're sort of there like, is, like coding 10 commandments sort of vibe, like do this. Yeah. And like, never you know, this. they have, there's ethics to it. There's like mm-hmm. maintain your integrity. Like mm-hmm. don't, don't, don't ever let investors like dominate you. Like, you know, don't ever lose people's data or get it hacked. Like there's all sorts of like, you know, stuff that they're like, you know, basically just don't treat people badly at all. Like those are all like things that are just kind of built into this, this little micro community that then became like one of the biggest powerhouses of Silicon mm. Valley. Mm. Uh, Cause it grew every year. He was so successful at choosing the right, right people to go in. So like, uh, well, you know, people have mixed, feelings about airbnb but that's one of them mm-hmm. uh Dr- dropbox is another uh there's like uh uh coinbase i don't know all sorts of things mm-hmm. come out of Y combinator so stripe is one of them stripe is one of the biggest yeah uh, so i mean so uses stripe i mean this is not a paid advertisement but so uses stripe for our but the thing is like, and stuff yeah so then these people like stripe, so use stripe stripe is actually cool stripe is like you could they would give talks at Y Combinator and I mostly pay attention to the people that have come out of Y Combinator. And there's like a lot of morality and human humanity mm-hmm. to what this guy's saying. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't think that people I have I don't think Mark Zuckerberg, for example, provides this guidance to like the community of of mm-hmm. so like, like I don't think people look to Mark Zuckerberg for morality, right? Mm-hmm. But they could if he would go ahead and try to form it and express it, but he he just doesn't take that role seriously. But uh and so, like, it's just amoral, right? Like, there's not, there's well, it, not part it's inter- of the picture. But. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it feels like there's a little bit – I've watched this. Sorry. I have, like, when I go to sleep at night, I watch the History Channel, which is objectively not historical at all. Um, but is Never, never done it. Uh, don't you, you'll never get that time back um but i but there's this show called the men who build america and it's like of course women had nothing to do with it but um there's there's it's all like the vanderbilts and the carnegies and the jp morgans and all these different things and i it's interesting now to sort of be alive when you can look and point to like zuckerberg and bezos as like you're sort of you're seeing what you're doing in a similar light to maybe Vanderbilt or Carnegie with like the steel industry or the train, like trains, the rail industry. And, and event, you know, it's like, like, I think if you look back to, at Bay, there's a picture of Jeff Bezos in his office on like week two, when he was literally like figured out how to put bookstores in online so you could like buy used. I remember I would go there and buy used books when I was in college because it was the place I could go and get like an obscure John Cage book. You know, there were other websites like Adol and some other things, but um, he, that was like he had a thing. It's like, well, let's make bookstores easier to sell their books online. And now, ten years later, fifteen years later, he's flying a rocket to space. Like, 
Right. Like, and again, but like, I haven't heard any of the morality behind him. Right. That's, that's the, what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying too. I'm agreeing yeah. with you that there, it's not that there, I, I, I don't want to assume there's no morality there. But it's because, just not part of the story. But it's just not the thing that he's leading with. And, and I feel like I need to, as a human, be, be able to hold two thoughts of like, all right, he's not leading with the morality. Maybe that doesn't mean there's not any there. So I'll let him lead yeah, with probably. what he wants to lead with. But you don't be surprised when you're treated like a Vanderbilt or a J.D. Rockefeller either. Like, like because J.D. Rockefeller may have been a moral person, but he just yeah. happened to tap into the the center of the earth and suck all of the oil out of it and had $400 billion during a time when nobody had any. So, like, I don't know. Like, I'm just sort of... It's it's weird to be alive in this time now and to sort of see these people in real life. So that's why I like the uh, direction of this cult-like thing that I was calling White Combinator. And, the, mm. and it's because it's so cultish that they're like, here's how you be a good person. Mm-hmm. You know? Also, your company's going to die. So treat everyone pretty well because you're probably just joining this community. And like, you know, here's here's just we're helping you become a good person and like a really good executor at whatever you're going to do next. Um, and then it, people like Patrick emerge from that. And they, I think that you were like, does anyone think about ethics? I'm like, no, they're too <laughs> dumb and young to think about ethics. So how do you solve that? Mm-hmm. Like, it's like Mark and probably Jeff or whatever, those came at a before time, the current times to solve it for the current uh, set of young people joining is to have more leaders that come out of this kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is sort of new agey at Y Combinator. Like mm. they, they, they like have, I think that it goes all over. It's like, here's your soul. <laughs> like it's, it's really funny sometimes. Does everybody like, get a copy of Oprah's book, the secret? <laughs> no, you know, it's, like... <laughs> it's actually smart. But it's, a, it's, a, it's hard for me to like disagree with most things that they, uh, but they're, they did, I don't know. It's like not amoral. There is something to it. And so I think that as people emerge and become successful, they also start building a brand around like how to be a good person their way. Mm. And Mark doesn't do that. Bezos doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. There's no one that follows them. But like, uh, uh, like, so for example, I said, Patrick, who's usually just more cultural or whatever. There's this woman, Matilda Collins, who wrote this software that I really like uh, called Front. But uh, her whole vibe is just like extreme discipline. Like it's, it's the way, like, here's all the different ways I've figured out how to be disciplined. Mm. And like, it just allows you to get through anything. And it's amazing. Mm. And so everyone just like starts just doing this like coaching thing that comes mm. out of this, like yeah, the Airbnb guy, like for whatever it's worth reading, uh, sometimes listening to his interviews, uh, he was a little early. So he didn't, he was like a prototype. So he wouldn't necessarily be the most moral person that come out, comes out of it because before this was, it was just like, he was like one of the first ones. But even then I learned a lot from like listening to, to his interviews and, and just how to like, just how to listen to a whole bunch of people's concerns and then somehow well, come up with the right answers. Well, as, as a consumer of, of tech, yeah, I have to say, I, again, like I'm trying to be a hold two thoughts in my head. I can look at, is it the guy, uh, Travis, the guy who invent or uh, Uber Travis? He would be, he would be outside of this bubble. No, of, yeah, like, yeah. I think that's based on what you've said. I think that's clear, <laughs> he, but yeah, he would not fit in. But this is this is the quandary for me. That app did everything that I've always wanted about taking a cab in New York City. And I can uh-huh. again, like as I'm getting in an Uber, I'm realizing all of the things. The cab driver in the yellow cab, 
yeah. is now yeah. being shorted out of his money and being pushed out. On the other hand, the things I fucking hate about getting in a New York cab is sitting in and then being like, where are you going? I'm, I'm going to a Brooklyn Navy Yard. Can you tell me how to get there? Yeah. Well, no, sort of saw that. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not, yeah. this is a job. I'm exchanging a service here. And I would like to expect that, you know, you go to London, everybody there knows where you're supposed to go. And then, then you get to your ride, you you get to your spot and they're like, oh, the credit card machine's broken. You got to pay cash. It's like, oh, and, and Uber came in and sort of just fixed all that. Except, Especially if you go to like outside in India or something, like you can actually move in a way that nobody could move in before. So there is something interesting about right, that. Right, but then how the ethics of this? It's like that moment in, in Indiana Jones where he swaps the bag of sand for the idol. Yeah, you know, so, it's like how do you do that? Because it's I, you know this is you're making things. I Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg have made things that I think worldwide people yeah. by and large say is useful. Yeah, by and large. But, well, uh, Facebook was, and then suddenly it started right. to hit the, I, the peak. Well, I would the, say maybe maybe let's take Facebook out of it. <laughs> but but even then, like the food packing stuff that So Percussion does. I'm yeah. sorry, no, it's no, the I only mean, place I, I mean, go, people, and I raise eight the grand a year. Started to show up only in 2016. Yeah. I think. but but just to say, like like there is. So where how do you do you all talk about that sand for the idle switch or like or is it just something that ha- comes differently for every? Platform no, what, I was trying to say like there is a there is most things don't have any like I don't know what Uber did in terms of their discussions, but Uber you don't hear much about Travis as a moral leader. Now That's the new true. guy you actually kind of do, mm. so maybe it'll take its a different direction. But like there was no interesting stories that I remember ever. It's not Brandon. He might have told them, but I missed them then. Um, well, if you missed them, I definitely missed them. Yeah. Whereas I, I do think everybody in, um, like, I mean, in the small bubble that I call Y Combinator, which is still kind of the heart of Silicon Valley, uh, you'll hear everyone talk about their tough decisions and how they made them. Mm. Like, mm. you know, so yes, they're always talking about the, it's like one of the most interesting topics. They don't call it that way. They just, it's just like, how do you make tough decisions? Mm. But like, they'll tell you stories about like all the stuff they had to juggle to decide and like how they came through and, and it's, it's, there's a podcast it's called the Y Combinator podcast, mostly just people talking about like interesting uh, things they got through that oh, basically no one wants to make that switch. So they're basically trying not to make that switch. Sorry. I'm not ignoring you. Can all just write it. Every time you say something, I write it down. Cause I'm, I'm <laughs> these are all. Oh yeah. Yeah. Check, check out like Y Combinator podcast. Isn't that like interesting. It's just people telling stories, but you'll see, you'll hear a bunch of those moments in those stories. Like, uh, let me see if I heard one recently. Oh, the one that comes to mind recently isn't really one of those stories, but someone's trying to work on some climate change tech mm-hmm. and they decided to like remove all, they found a way to do it entirely through revenue. Like uh, uh, there is, they're like, they, they, they decided that the market was so open to what they were doing that there's no impact part of what they're doing at all. Like that there's, it, nothing mm-hmm. they brand is around that it's all about just making people money and they're like mm-hmm. wow this worked like i can't believe it we're mm-hmm. getting we're like getting uh I, I, there must be some underbelly that i'm missing but like it was interesting to be like they were trying to create a climate change company but they're like but we need it to be really really big uh because it won't work unless it's really really big um and therefore we need to like figure out the mechanics so that uh 
it actually just makes everyone money. And that's the only mm. concern that we could, you know, we could build this company around. And they, uh, that was an interesting podcast, but it wasn't really like a, <laughs> there's no switch well, there. I don't, I don't know if I heard the switch there. Do you know the, I mean, have you crossed paths with any of the guys from Waze? No. Like this is, that's the other thing too. It's just so fascinating to me. Like Waze is another product I use every day. I commute yeah. four hours a day when I drive to New York to work. I live in near Hartford, Connecticut. So I'm driving to New York and Princeton all the time. Oh, Waze is like that my is far drive. Oh, it's awful. But Waze is my jam. Except you start to hear about these poor people who live on tiny little side streets who bought their tiny little home right off the beaten path because – and now there's like <laughs> the – and right they're just there. like, my kid got hit by a car. My cat got hit. Like all of these things. And there's just like – it's because Waze is rerouting. And so there's these unintended consequences Whoa. that come with yeah. all of a sudden now your street is a highway. <laughs> and it, just because crowdsourcing – Anyway. I feel like Waze would properly deflect that responsibility to the town, which sort of does make sense when I think about it. Like, they have they not more deflected anything. I think I, I the number of places I've been stuck in traffic and I've looked over and just seen like a 90-year-old woman smoking a corncob pipe on her butter porch. <laughs> like, I've been like, I don't think there's many cars on this road. And I think... I'm sorry, ma'am. I didn't mean to disrupt your smoke this morning. <laughs> wow. You know? and, okay, and so, I had never thought about that. Yeah, so unintended consequences uh, are interesting. I'm sure that's what Mark, you know, Facebook's story is, but it's like a lot of, they'll come up. I do, I personally think, yeah. I think that the elder, the like people that emerge should do what recent uh, like Stripe-like people do, which mm-hmm. is like start really talking about uh exactly what they teach us in my company, just like how to be a good person as you run one of these things and like how to actually like care, you know, carefully. Um, But I think that people are doing that. And I think everyone should join that group of people doing that. And then you would not have uh, amoral companies like we used to have um, 10, 15 years ago. Well, uh, Kanal, this is, uh, this has been an amazing conversation. I've really enjoyed this, and I have I have basically I have one small question and a fo- then just a, a sort of follow up to let to, to wrap things up. How many Thank projects you. for folks who like think that making things, whether it be art, whether it be a software program, are just sort of like that making things is this thing that you divine from the heavens and you wake up and you go beep boop beep boop boop and your new platform comes out. How f- uh. for every stripe. For every attempt at Stripe, how many failed Stripes were there before your friend landed on the version of Stripe that I now use? Yeah, for example, Stripe was told not to build Stripe because there were a bunch of teenagers. There were two teenagers saying, we're going to beat PayPal. And everyone's like, you're out of your mind, right? Because I'm sure lots of, they're like, yeah, lots of people had tried this and failed. Um, So you need to bake in that you'll you'll almost certainly fail statistically right because i think the answer to that question is uh higher than 90 because 90 is the number of funded startups that fail so you you know how many startups actually get funding is probably like another nine ten percent or something so you're you're looking at those kinds of odds one percent um so you have to really enjoy you. Is this the best thing to do with your life? If if you answer that, you're like, no, then don't do it. But like often, like, like any project comes out of you being like, just let me try it. There's no like guiding force that's like bigger than that. You're just like, what if I try it? And then if that's more fun, then you keep doing it. And if it's not that fun, you try something else. Um, I think that's, that's what I, and so far we're not really succeeding uh, with friends. We're doing okay. 
but we're really enjoying all the things we get to try. And mm. so we were just talking about like, are you, I was asking my co-founder, is he afraid? And I'm like, we're like, I guess maybe we're too small to be afraid, but we're definitely not afraid. What we, what we do know is that this is like, we wouldn't like to be doing anything else. Mm. Um, so then that's, that's the reason we keep going. You're too small to fail. <laughs> yeah, at, the at, moment, this, anyway. at this, at this point, too, too small, small to fear. Too I think small the, to fear, our, yeah. the argument is when you get bigger, you have these moral decisions, and that's when you yeah. start to be afraid of making the wrong moral decision. That's right. That's right. Well, let me ask you one final question for folks. Uh, just because you have you have a background in New York and in, in specific presenting and sort of curating. Um, what advice would you have for folks in New York right now? Um, and I'm keeping it New York specific just because that's the community that I intersect with the most on a database and the yeah. most I'm familiar with. The scene has changed there so much just in the last 15 years. I mean, when I was there, it was like 285 Kent, Glasslands, The Stone, Tank, yeah. Roulette. Like there was, there was like 10 places you could go and completely shit the bed and no one would care because that's what that spot was for. Because then you would go and play the next festival you'd go on tour. Like it was a place to try things out. And like, yeah, yeah. I feel like maybe I just don't know about what those right. spots are now, but like, what is your advice for a 19 year old Kunal Gupta right now in New York post pandemic? Like what, what are some sort of kernels that you feel like would stand up to the test of time 10 years ago and now in post pandemic life in New York? You're asking me a hard question as someone who's been in San Francisco post pandemic. So but you, you, uh, but but you've been in the trenches in New York enough to know what it what it's like to take a few punches in New York. You know, like so what what are some things you've gleaned from your time there that I'm just staring at this list of spaces that I recommended to my friend mm. to check out as I went to New York. Blue Stockings, been there forever. Elsewhere, came out of Glasslands Market mm. Hotel. Spectacle Theater, been there forever. Punjabi Delhi. Uh, I've named a few bars like Bossa Nova Civic Club. Mm-hmm. Wonderville, which came out of Death by Audio. Magic City, which maybe many people had not heard of, but is in Greenpoint. It's like a kitchen slash event space. It's kind of amazing. Uh, Pioneer Works, Friedman Gallery. Mm-hmm. So as I look through that list, I can't, I don't like, I don't see the change. Like these are mm-hmm. all people that adapted and are continuing to create experimental. Uh, like there's just, and I, I mean, there are a lot of businesses on with friends that are still event organizers because that's where we started. And so to me, I see this abundance of mm. places to experiment just like always. Like they found, they adapted their business models a little bit, like for example, through memberships and stuff like that. Uh, but I don't know if it shrank. Like I didn't, I know Silent Barn's gone and like a few other places are gone, but I, there's just as many places that popped up in, in their place. So well, that's that's reassuring, and I, and I want to sort. I want to identify this moment as a like my what was imprinted on me as a young musician in New York, like trying to figure out where the scene was. Were, were places like Tank, Roulette, Stone, um, uh, Two Eighty Five Kent, Glasslands, like all these places where I was just like, this is music, like you know, out of out of grad school, living in New York for the first time. And when those places went away, I'm like, well, I guess all the places are gone. I'm now 15 years later. So anyway, I just want to sort of clock that as a, like my ignorance and not a like proof of it's proof that I don't know what's actually happening in New York. And I think your advice, whether you've said it specifically or not, is just there's places go play. Keep. Yes. Keep on. A hundred percent. That's my, I mean, there's so many, I just thought of like 10 more that are all experiment. Like they went 
but the this I think there's more places than there were when you're uh, than the time that you're thinking of. I hope I that's think, right. I hope yeah. you're right because so, it, uh, it was very formative in my time um, in terms of the way I see music now as a 42 year old, where I maybe have a little less flexibility in my just my quality of life, the things that I've become used to. Like when I was 24, that feeling having a, like Monkey Town, like I remember going into Monkey Town with yeah, like Jenk Ergoon and Jason, and we're yeah. like playing for twelve dollars, and we got like a free meal, but we got stiffed on the meal. Yeah. Like there's all I these got things. wasted at Monkey Town. Oh my they god, would just give you free drinks if you yeah. played there. Yeah, like, and oh. <laughs> but but those and, were also the places where so percussion would go in and be like, okay, we have we're doing a show yeah. called Where We Live, and it's going to go yeah. bam. But we have these three pieces with Jenk that we think kind of stink, and we want to yeah. try them out. We don't know if they work, and so like yeah. Monkey Town was where we would go and like you would be there and Tristan and you'd be like that piece stunk but we love you you know like oh it my was- God. so many people work night and day to provide those spaces uh like I mean I'm just gonna uh, there's so many but I'm just calling out Wonderville out of nowhere I don't uh, know what we Wonderville, Wonderville is in the old secret project robot which I think also opened up a new spot so okay. they're still there too uh but they are a video game gallery just like baby castles used to be but mm-hmm. they've taken it uh one step further so it looks kind of amazing and they have the heart of uh, Secret Project Robot in the sense that they book just experimental stuff. Um, but they figured out, like, through the arcade and the bar to have a pretty diverse traffic. Like, you get a good... You, there's a whole bunch of weird people, like, that are not exactly experimental arts people that are also there. It's, like, mm-hmm. kind of a perfect space to, like, mm-hmm. try out stuff and see how people feel. Um, so they work forever. Like, they're just tireless workers on this place. But, like, I can't... Like, all of them are. They, they're They're... That's why we created our own companies because we like, we're like these people are so passionate and so successful. They should not not be able to pay the bills and like disappear. Like there's no re- that that's unfair. So let's, uh, you know, let's do what we can for them. But they're they're all there. Everyone's there. Everyone's in New York trying to make this place for musicians like you, uh, 20 years ago or 15 years ago. Well, my deepest there. hope is that in this past year when the government was just hemorrhaging money for SBA loans and PPP oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. shuttered venue operators grants. I I hope, I don't know this for certain, but I hope that all of those tiny little places that you just mentioned and that I've played that have yeah. been so crucial to what so did. Yeah. I hope they just stuck a straw right in the aorta of the government and have just been like, like sucking out because these venues have yeah. never had money ever. And now like, I hope that some of this grant money trickled to them because it's those places are yeah. massive and and i think that i think their loans are forgiven well not necessarily but like it's not hard to get them forgiven mm-hmm. uh, you can start doing that now i think the money actually did exactly do what you said and well deserved of course well uh-huh. and i think those i think when people talk about systems especially in the music world i'm i'm a yes and sort of guy i think carnegie hall and lincoln center doesn't exist without glasslands and, and the stone We'd like to believe the same I, as the people <laughs> at I, the ground level. Well, but I believe that because yeah. I know for certain I wouldn't have stood on stage at Carnegie or Lincoln Center were it not for those other places. And now, whether or not Carnegie and Lincoln Center acknowledge that, I, I can't control that. But I'm saying to you, That's those places being there are absolutely – and I'm, there's no value judgment. It's not like Carnegie's better than the stone. It's just a different thing. And one, there's a, like, who's, who's the bird in the mouth of the alligator picking the algae off the teeth? Is it Carnegie or is it the stone? I don't know. Sometimes it's Carnegie. Sometimes it's the stone. It depends. 
on whatever <laughs> I need from that person. Am I the am I the alligator or am I the bird? Am I hungry or do I have bird dirty teeth? You know, like oh, yeah. Yeah. which is it? And I, I I want I hope I wish that our system, our society, our culture could talk about playing a gig at the stone is not a stepping stone. It's it's a place where you're gonna go and get punched in the fucking face because when you walk into Carnegie Hall you know, there's going to be a yeah, New York Times reviewer and some stagehand who doesn't give a shit about you, you know? Yeah. And, like, if you've been punched in the faces at a few other places, like, it just makes those times less scary. And then it makes you more adventurous when you go back to the stone a second time. Because then you realize why that place exists and you start to use it as a tool in the same way that you use coding and all of these other things to yeah. develop the things about you that you need developed. I can't help but think about people, like, we all have this joke in the, well, when I was more in the punk house scene, which was mm-hmm. the music version of the hacker house scene, mm-hmm. uh, our friends would just get on major labels and then we would never see them again. Mm. Uh, so like we would, they would come play their first shows. Uh, I don't know. Grimes, for example, like uh, play first show in New York at old sound barn. And then um, there's no way I can talk to her now. Right. Mm. Uh, but this is, we saw this so many times. And then sometimes those people would come back and play secret shows of their like shittier stuff that they're experimenting with. Oh, yeah, they would. And they would like, it would be a huge deal for us because we'd like fill up the room three days in a row and like actually it helps us survive. And so that, that, you know, I see, I see the map of how that relation, I agree with you basically. Like yeah, that's I mean, exactly what happens. I, so I love comedy. And so I listen to comedian podcasts all the time and um, Kevin Hart, and I don't. I'm not even necessarily a fan of his comedy necessarily, but he specifically tours 180 venues a year for eventually his arena tours. That's like cool. he specifically is like, no, 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 no. I need to go into the comedy store. I need to go into the funny bone. I need to go into That's laugh cool. tracks in Cleveland. I need to go to all these places because when I walk on stage at Madison Square Garden. I don't want that. I don't. I want to know what every step's going to feel like. I want to know what shoes I'm wearing. I want to know is my shirt. Do I do I button my shirt all the way to the top button or just the second button? Like, and if you've done that 180 times, then you can walk out there like Muhammad Ali and rope a dope the whole audience, knowing that you're not going to get knocked out. You know, like, and I. That's so. That's the like five, the half a percent in uh, Ohio. Ver, you know, you got to just add them all up. That's the actual answer. That that makes total sense. Yeah, and you know, anyway, well, listen, Canal. I I feel like this is a, a positive place to end it, and I I feel like I've <laughs> I've sadly only scratched the surface of what I want to ask you about. So maybe we could do a part two at some point, and um, yeah, I'd love that. Maybe when you've um, created an app that. Um, actually just like the, the unintended consequences that kills small children and you didn't realize that was going to be the case like yeah. uh, round, round two when i'm really sad okay, round two when you when your ethics it turns, when you, it turns out like you were we were right there are no ethics in tech and it's a real problem and i don't even know how to deal with mine and that will I'll, be I'll a really interesting conversation i'll bet and i will look forward to it um Kanal, thank you so much stay healthy and uh i hope to touch base with you sooner than later and cross paths thank you josh bye-bye all right take it easy Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, and so percussion as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder. Um, just a really nice guy. Very dependable. Check him out. 
If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in Pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aliandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. Mangochowclothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.